Welcome to the Energy Environment Economy Podcast, a production of the Environmental Business Council of New England. I'm Ann Geisinger, Executive Director at EBC, and I'll be your host for this episode. Here at the Energy Environment Economy Podcast, we talk all about the business of the environment from all corners of the industry. So renewable energy, stormwater, climate, brownfields, wetland science for today, uh, the list goes on. The energy and environmental industries are really in a very exciting time, and we're here to explore it all. Today, I'm talking to April Jaroski, a water resources and climate resilience specialist with Boston O'Neill, and Mary Scholl, a project coordinator with the Narragansett Bay National Estuarine Research Reserve. Thank you guys both for joining today. Really looking forward to hearing from you both. So um, April, why don't you start? Just tell us a little bit about yourself. Yeah, thanks for having us on here. And again, my name is April and I work as a water resources and climate resilience specialist with Fuss and O'Neill now, but I became interested in the environmental industry just from growing up and going camping with my family. I went to undergrad at Penn State and studied environmental resource management. And my degree was the closest to a soil science degree you can get. And I competed in collegiate soil judging competitions, which was a really insightful and great experience. After that, I worked at Sovereign Consulting in an environmental consulting firm for a little bit and did groundwater sampling and got into some wetlands work doing delineations and mitigation monitoring. And that was interesting to me because it was a field that I had not explored in undergrad and I wanted to learn more. So I ended up going to grad school at the University of Connecticut to study wetlands. And that is where I met Mary. Um, She helped out with the lab and field work as part of my research project, which was looking into wetland ecosystem function uh, in the face of climate change. And eventually um, got a job after getting my master's with Tyne Bond as an environmental scientist in Massachusetts and have been working as a consultant since. And now with Fuss and O'Neill, working on a lot of climate resilience projects, ecological restoration, mostly related to the environmental permitting, um, but also get out into the field still sometimes with wetland delineations and stormwater sampling and stream crossing assessments. That's great. I um I need to know what a soil judging contest is. That's that sounds really interesting. Yeah, I was hoping you you would ask. Um, <laughs> not too many universities offer it, but because Penn State is a land grant university, it has a strong agricultural background. Um, soils is really important to that, and so the soil judging is you have a coach and a team and you travel to a university that is hosting the competition. It's a week-long competition, and there are soil pits that are dug, and you look at all of the layers of the soils, all of the the different horizons, and you describe them. You look at the colors, the texture. Do they have these things, redox morphic concentrations or depletions that tell you that the water level is fluctuating in that layer? And then you classify it with a the soils tax taxonomy, which is similar to how you classify plants, but it's for soils and you also infer land uses. So because we're seeing what we see in the soils, can there be a house with a basement here? And it's a really fun experience. So you travel to Wisconsin for it, Rhode Island, and it's the most intensive technical training I, I've ever received. 
That is fascinating. I think that is so cool. <laughs> yeah, I, I recommend it to everyone. I I have a maybe future goal of becoming a soil judging coach one day, but nice. Nice. <laughs> we'll have to see where that goes. <laughs> Mary, can... I think you could still do it if you want to. <laughs> That'd be awesome. <laughs> we can co-coach. I've always been jealous. I I really wish I did that, but I'm not sure if UConn even had a soil judging. It does not. UMass doesn't either, but that's where I could come in. Let's see. So for everybody listening, April's ready to start up a soil judging contest for uh, UMass or UConn. (laughs) That's great. So Mary, why don't you jump in and just tell us a little bit more about your background? Sure. Yeah. So as April mentioned, I met April when I was an undergrad at the University of Connecticut. She was doing her master's. There I studied environmental science and I was working in a landscape biogeochemistry lab. So that's a crazy word, but (laughs) it's basically the study of um, chemical cycles in the natural environment. And, you know, you study greenhouse gases or soil, um, nutrient cycling, water quality and cycling. Um, And so April was actually the one who really got me more into coastal habitats. Um, And, you know, as an undergrad, I got to get out in the field and work in a, a variety of habitats, but always kind of studied wetlands and, and liked being out in wetland habitats. After I graduated from UConn, I actually got a job at the EPA's Atlantic Coastal Environmental Sciences Division. It's a lab out in Narragansett. So there's only a few um, laboratories as part of the EPA uh, through their Office of Research and Development. And it was really awesome because, you know, it's a lab that's dedicated to doing, you know, coastal research, not as much policy there in that, in that particular location. And I was working on a living shoreline restoration out on Martha's Vineyard. So uh, in that experience, I got to be part of the, the development, implementation, and a lot of the monitoring around a living shoreline. Um, and just, you know, getting to learn a lot more about salt marshes and how they respond to climate change and uh, coastal erosion and things like that. We were monitoring a variety of factors. So that was really fun for me and kind of solidified my interest in coastal habitats. And after a couple of years in that role, I um, went back to grad school. As most people in the sciences know, they kind of need to go back to school eventually. I have a master's, I studied environmental science again, but my thesis was mostly on marsh migration. So the movement of marshes into upland habitats. And I was particularly interested in in studying um, coastal forests and how they were kind of um, cohabitating with new wetland vegetation. And so I was studying how coastal forests were responding to saltwater inundation with this with increased sea level rise and, and marsh migration into these areas. and what it kind of takes for them to, for trees in particular to die off due to saltwater intrusion. And so that was really interesting. That was actually along the Connecticut coast. And eventually after that degree, I made my way back to Rhode Island and got to work as a NOAA uh, Digital Coast Fellow. It's part of the NOAA Coastal Management Fellowship Program where they're, you know, traditionally, I guess, most fellows have a scientific background but don't need one but you're kind of more thrown into a a coastal management role either providing technical assistance or working on a 
a particular management problem. Um, and there I, you know, continued to work more in the marsh migration realm. So I worked for the National Estuarine Research Reserve System. And that's, I'm not sure if, and you're familiar with the reserve system, but there are 30 reserves throughout the country and they're all designated, you know, areas of protected coastal habitat but they're also these living laboratories where they're designed to study um, and monitor long-term changes to coastal habitats. And there's you know, educational and coastal training programs that are provided there in those areas. So it, you know, I was based in Rhode Island, but I was working on behalf of the entire reserve system in that. Um, and I was kind of, I conducted a, a needs assessment on you know, how the reserve system can play a larger role in this resilience concept of marsh migration, you know, how we can influence it more through our programming and um, the different ways that we, you know, influence the coastal world. And um, that fellowship lasted for two years, but I was really fortunate to join the Narragansett Bay Research Reserve crew at the end of my um, fellowship in this kind of new role. I'm a project coordinator now. So I do a lot of pursuit and development of projects and proposal writing right now for habitat restoration and resilience projects for the state. So I kind of track federal funding because as a lot of you probably know, there's a lot, a huge increase in federal funding for restoration, especially in coastal areas. So I track those sort of um, funding sources get you know people together to apply to projects, um, think about project development, and then oversee projects once they're funded. So we have a few you know that we're administering funding through um, just kind of overseeing and you know doing some project management related tasks to those. So we're having a lot of conversations at various events, meetings with EBC on this federal funding. Maybe we can stick with that for a moment because I think a lot of people are kind of wondering, well, there's tons of funding out there, especially for restoration, which has never really happened before. Who's tracking it? How do we know how to apply for it? How do communities know where to go? Or, you know, how do the consultants find out how to help a community apply for it? So it sounds like you're actually really involved in that process. Can you speak more to it? Yeah, and I would say I think that there is, I'm seeing a greater effort being put into building capacity for positions like mine, because um, there's kind of a need or at least a largely recognized need for coordinators or people that are just, you know, moving projects along, you know, everybody has a lot going on, but to take the next step in, in doing a term, you know, four to five year long project and taking that on is, is a lot. And so people have recognized that we need more staff within our different organizations to specifically work on projects that are, you know, associated with all of this increased funding. And so I think we've seen also capacity building funding coming through at a lot of different agencies. And that's that's how my position is supported um, through NOAA, specifically capacity building funds that were allocated to the reserves. To and that came out funding. of the recent bill, the capacity building funds? Yep, that came oh, out of great. the IIJA Infrastructure great. Investment and Jobs Act. Yeah, exactly. <laughs> <laughs> it's a mouthful. That's great. So April, when it comes to projects that you've worked on or projects coming up uh, for you, for your firm, are you able to, you know, work with folks like Mary to, to figure out some of these funding streams and help communities get some of these restoration projects underway? Yeah, definitely. The, the projects that I'm primarily involved in are in Massachusetts under our Municipal Vulnerability Preparedness Program, which is the state's 
Climate Resilience Program. Mary is out of Rhode Island, but I think we might have a good future together. We we can make something work. Yes. <laughs> um, but through that that program, it's issued by the state, and um, some of the the projects that I'm working on are my favorite projects are dam removal projects, um, other river restoration or pond restoration projects to allow for you know improved water water quality, habitat quality, right better riparian corridors while also providing this climate resilience. And in terms of the the pond project, I'm thinking of it's also a local swimming hole that's free where people can go and seek refuge, especially when we're thinking about the increases in temperature due to climate change. So that aspect of that project is really, really interesting and will be meaningful when we're able to go through construction. We're early in the planning phases now, but I think it has a lot of great opportunities to help benefit the environment and people at the same time. Sounds like in the world of sort of wetlands management, coastal management, coastal marshes, things like that, there's a really huge interplay between climate work, resilience work, adaptation work, and these restoration projects. So April, do you want to just touch on that briefly and then maybe Mary can chime in? Yeah, sure. The climate is really regulated a lot by wetland ecosystems because wetlands have a lot of natural greenhouse gas exchange, and that's something me and Mary have both worked on in our academic research. But they also are large carbon sinks because they're saturated a lot of the time, and that provides a lot of opportunity for carbon sequestration. So thinking about restoring wetlands to allow them to provide more carbon sequestration capacity or preserving wetlands so that they're not built upon and we would lose that capacity is a way that wetlands and climate kind of are interconnected. Another way I'm thinking more project specific is with thinking of increases in precipitation especially in the Northeast, um, restoring these wetlands and maintaining areas that will be flooded is really important so that we can mitigate the effects of flooding to our communities and our infrastructure. Inland flooding, I work mostly inland, um, is is definitely a, a big issue that we're trying to address, but also thinking about improving tidal exchange and allowing that tide and storm surge to fluctuate naturally without impacting our infrastructure. And those are really key ways that wetlands and and I'm seeing climate science and climate resilience being integrated with each other and with the, the dam removals as well, just restoring a river to its natural corridor so that it can flow as it, it once did. That That is a huge win for restoration and resilience. Yeah, April, I, I think that was a, a good point about, you know, how inland flooding also intersects with, you know, when I, I think about more the coastal sphere, but, you know, we're starting to see those kinds of worlds collide. And I think that's, you know, especially as my focus has been on marsh migrations, the movement of marshes into these spaces that were not naturally coastal or receiving salt water requires, you know, communication with different groups of people that, you know, weren't always thinking about the coast. And so it's really interesting. We're seeing kind of the merging of coastal and inland resource managers just because of everything that's changing and how, you know, we have to know how to respond. 
but yeah, I think my work has always kind of focused on how wetlands are responding to climate change and what kinds of management strategies there are to um, support them in the long term, given that, you know, we almost have an impact on everything at this point. So, you know, I think a lot about sea level rise and how that's impacting wetlands and how they're, you know, even chemically or physiologically changing as a result of that. And so there's a lot of research, or I guess most of the research that I look at is about, you know, the change of those habitats due to these kinds of drivers. And yeah, I, I mentioned, you know, marsh migration is really this intersection of wetland science and, and climate change. But I guess I also wanted to add that we think a lot about other solutions to wetland resilience, like one project we're working on um, and some a topic we've explored a lot in Rhode Island is thin layer placement or sediment placement, which is uh, usually happens in conjunction with dredging, which is another entirely separate activity, but can be really beneficial to do together where you're really adding elevation, you know, you're adding sediment to build elevation of the current marsh that might be under threat due to sea level rise. And it buys some time of the marsh, um, but it has been proven successful. It's a rather new and sort of complicated strategy, but it's just another thing that coastal, you know, managers or restoration practitioners are experimenting with. And I think there's a lot of research around how those wetlands are surviving over time. And there's so much to explore about our success. So we're thinking about a coastal, is it a, co a coastal marsh, for example, and you're talking about raising it up a little bit in height to allow it to still be a productive marsh environment for a period of time, given that there is sea level rise and more inundation from saltwater. Is that the idea? Right. Uh, because are, are we thinking that that marsh is going to be migrating, right? Marshes probably historically, I'm guessing, migrate a lot <laughs> before humans uh, started to build their houses on marsh environments. So do we want to buy time so that it's a slower migration pattern? People can respond to it. I think it's just one of the strategies like in the toolkit. There's a lot of areas where marshes can't migrate naturally, and we would love for them to all just do their thing and <laughs> have the space. But there's really not a lot of, at least in Rhode Island, there's not a lot of migration space. And so we have to, you know, restoration practitioners are like, what can we do to ensure some of these survive and continue, you know, providing all these ecosystem services. And that's one strategy is to build them up in place because they can't really move, sadly. And that accretion of soil in the salt marshes too makes me think of dam removal projects. When you have a dam, the sediment will build up behind the dam and then it's not naturally migrating downstream. So as we continue to remove dams, that will help provide that sediment downstream and organic matter to help these delta areas and salt marshes to accrete sediment and continue to, to function as the wetlands they are today. And that's just a, an added kind of extra co-benefit because some of these stream systems are just starved of sediment. Is that something that when you were talking about dam removals or dams in general, you really need to, to do a lot of sediment management then? And um, how do we manage some of the potential contamination within the sediment and having that go downstream? Oh, yes. It, it is a huge, huge 
challenge, I will say. I have a project in, in Haverhill for the Little River Dam Removal Project, and there is, uh, you know, portions of the sediment that's impounded right now are contaminated, and they will need to be removed um, and taken off-site and disposed of. And if you think about the quantity of sediment that needs to be removed, this is millions of dollars that could be removed. And working with the regulators um, is, is really important to understand what can we allow to migrate downstream naturally as it would have and what really needs to be removed. And in an extremely urban corridor, that the answer to that question, there's a lot of gray area. And that dam removal project is, will hopefully really allow DEP to come up with a good solution for future dam removals in extremely urban corridors, just because it becomes infeasible to remove all of the sediment that might be contaminated above a, a certain level, uh, just really due to cost of disposal. And are we, are wetlands and marsh environments considered um, potential um, ways to clean up some of the water and soil contamination. I know that there's a lot of, you know, little um, areas of, I'm thinking of storm water and they create these like mm -hmm. infrastructure for storm water and how it can be a sink for some of the icky water coming off of a, a section of pavement. Are wetlands and marshes the same idea for some of that? They are. And that was a lot of what my master's research was related to. And one of the ecosystem functions and, and services that wetlands provide is water quality benefits. And I looked pretty deeply into the nitrogen cycle, excess nitrate from fertilizer, from, from lawns, um, can run off and accumulate in the water and in the soil. But especially in wetlands, there are denitrifying bacteria that can transform this excess nitrate into the gaseous form um, and essentially clean the water and remove it from the system. And because of the these bacteria, they like in anaerobic and aerobic. They like when there's no or low oxygen and also oxygen. They need both that fluctuation. And that's why the wetlands provide the perfect habitat for the microbes um, to essentially clean, clean the water from excess nitrate. Um, so that's that's one way that wetland areas can improve water quality. I have a question for you, April. What is the what are the sort of contaminant like triggers for uh, dam removal? Like, what's because I'm just thinking, you know, a lot of the like permitting and policies linked to human health versus mm -hmm. other things that wetlands can provide are like not necessarily related to that, but other environmental. Yeah, it, I mean, it can be the whole run of the gamut from metals to petroleum products, PCBs. It just depends what industrial sources for the most part were were upstream and de decreasing the <laughs> the water quality and in the past so there's a specific chemical constituents you have to test for in, in massachusetts but it, it really just depends i also think about we talk about human health and the impacts of contaminants potentially or other things and it made me think about environmental justice communities and how some of this comes into play for those communities. You know, April's doing a dam removal in a relatively urban environment in Haverhill, um, where there have been a lot of industrial impacts. Clearly, it impacted the sediments there and probably the water quality. Um, so have either of you worked with some of the newer, uh, you know, regulations or regulatory environments around environmental justice and the projects that you're doing? 
Um, April, did you want to go first or? Go ahead, Mary. <laughs> I'll, I'll go after. Well, a, a really big project that's taken the spotlight or will take the spotlight with newer funding that should come out through, through NOAA is this very this ongoing project to um, provide fish passage in the Blackstone River. So the Blackstone um, runs, I live in Providence, Rhode Island, but it runs north of me and it, it runs right through a lot of what we're defining as environmental justice communities. And it's been amazing to see the community support for fish passage. Um, people are really invested in having fish return to the river. And I think um, it's gonna be part of my job to sort of narrate that story that it's so much more than just habitat benefits. Um, providing fish passage will provide so much more than just increasing fish populations to these areas. It's, it's so meaningful to people that live there and they've seen over decades, the river has really cleaned up in terms of water quality and there's more public access points. And um, it's a really interesting uh, example to see how communities come together to, to care about an issue that, you know, when we think of fish passage, it's just so technical. And <laughs> I'm even learning a lot about these different um, methods for getting fish up upriver. There's crazy technology nowadays, but it, they are something that's interesting about this project is that these are dams that we can't remove. They're integrated into a really urban area. So trying to articulate that fish passage has to happen in these really creative ways with fish ladders and going around the dam um, because a lot of federal funding track, you know, I understand the need to remove dams for this issue, but sometimes we have to kind of work in the, the environment that we're given, especially in these urban environments where things are pretty solidified by this point. So that's something that I'll be working on a lot. It's a really, it's been, like I said, a, a decades long effort to, to provide fish passage up for Blackstone. And I'm excited to continue working to achieve that. It's a slow burn. <laughs> yeah, that's great. I think I uh, did an EDC field trip to some dam removals along the Blackstone. I know my my colleague Nils was involved in, in many of the dam removal projects in Rhode Island. In terms of my experience with EJ, and I'm guessing you're keeping your eye towards the MEPA regulations, which came into effect within the past year or so. A lot of our projects are subject to the new environmental justice regulations and protocols. And that is an aspect that's been integrated into all of our projects. And I know I keep going back to dam removals because they are my favorite projects and have been on the forefront of my mind ever since I joined FUSS. But really the, these projects, I'm thinking of Haverhill specifically too, it's reducing the flood risk to these neighborhoods that are nearby. Removing the dam is going to alleviate the liability that the town has to repair it and maintain it. And also, if there was a failure, um, that could negatively impact downstream populations, the infrastructure or the people and where they live. Of course, that's something we never want to happen. And by removing the dam, then that's not a, an issue anymore. And of course, through the dam removal, we're doing a lot of river restoration, a lot of plantings. 
along that riparian corridor. And Mary mentioned recreational and access opportunities. That's another aspect that's incorporated into a lot of our projects, allowing people to have better access to the waterfront or these wetland areas so that they can enjoy the natural environment. And, you know, the sh again, the, the trees can provide some shade and some cooling points but also that stretch of the river being restored can provide some areas for better passive recreation, walking paths, but even putting some boat launches in, in that area. So there's a lot of kind of co-benefits between improving the environment. Um, so ecological benefits and, and for the community and thinking about removing that legacy of contamination. I mean, that's, that's really public health there and improving the water quality. So there's a reduction in, in algal blooms, which are also a public health issue. Those those are where environmental quality improvements really can be beneficial to the surrounding communities as well. Or, you know, EBC is certainly keeping an eye on the MEPA regulations and trying to have programming to talk about that because it is really a big impact on the consulting world, of course. But there are other environmental justice um, things going on in the other New England states as well. I mean, I think in the mm -hmm. 40 um, with EPA. So there's a lot going on. And um, we just recently at EBC heard from David Cash, who's the regional administrator here for the New England region at EPA. And I know that's one of his big focuses is thinking about these um, underserved uh, communities that really um, have bore, bore the burden of a lot of um, environmental degradation. We've talked a lot about, um, you know, marsh environments, wetlands environments, dam removals, sort of, there's a lot of going on in the ecological restoration world especially when it relates to these climate impacts. And I think everything kind of gets tied together, but from each of your perspectives, what's what's the big thing that you constantly hear about every day? Like we need to be working on this, or this is the next big thing, or this is the stuff we need to be focusing on moving forward. And it might be the things we've already talked about, but from your perspective where you sit, what do you think is this, you know, the big focus right now for the ecological restoration world? I think it's just a really exciting time to be in this wor world. I think we've had, you know, people have been studying this for a long time. It feels like now is the green light. And I think that's kind of what I hear every day is like, this is unprecedented. The amount of funding that we've been getting, the amount of federal support we've been seeing for the things that we do every day, it kind of just feels very validating to be like, yes, I believe that this is what we need to put our money in. And it feels like it's the time to focus on all of these different kinds of restoration efforts. Um, and I think that we're ready for it, you know, but it's just a capacity problem most of the time. And it's, you know, like I said earlier, taking on projects in addition to your already, you know, full workplace is, is a lot. And so I think it's also, as I mentioned before, inspiring to see that there is a need to build capacity within these agencies that have been pretty limited in the past couple of years. So that's giving me a lot of hope. There's a lot of more positions opening up to oversee projects and job descriptions that are very similar to mine, coordinator, resilience specialist type positions. And just seeing that need for those kinds of jobs is really hopeful. And so, yeah, I think people are overwhelmed by the amount of money because it requires a lot of work to apply to these funds you know and that's also yes, it does that's I think really good for the public to know is that you know we're not just yes we are getting inundated with lots of money but the the process for applying for these funds is 
a lot of times still competitive. It requires like a very well thought out process where we're going to have answers after we complete these projects and, you know, they're really well established and supported by people that do this, have been doing this for a very long time. So it's just, it's money well used and it's, it's really awesome to see. Yeah. That makes me think about, there's a lot about climate resilience, which is, you know, so closely integrated with these ecological restoration projects. And another word that I hear a lot is nature-based solutions. It's, there's a lot of buzz going on. It means different things, but to me, it means designing an approach where you work with nature as opposed to working against it and trying to incorporate natural materials or features or processes as much as possible as you can in while providing the the solutions you need in our, our built environment. And those nature-based solutions can come in a whole array of of ways something you know a dam removal can be a nature-based solution or living shorelines right you're planting instead of just putting up a concrete bulkhead or you're putting in those oyster shell habitat rocks um and that i think there's a lot of opportunity for practitioners to incorporate that nature-based solutions into their projects and it's really in its infancy right now but um, I did want to mention the White House issued a nature-based solutions resource guide. So it's something that's really on the eye on really the, the federal level. And that that's pretty interesting to see that coming from the government, a, a guide on that. So, you know, as Mary was saying, it's an exciting time to be in restoration. And I think incorporating nature-based solutions as much as possible has a lot of promise for our future. That's great. Thanks. So as we uh, wrap up here, um, I ask all of our podcast guests to just tell me what's capturing your attention this weekend. And it can be anything. It could be that you got Taylor Swift tickets. It could be that you went on a great walk. It doesn't matter. But what captured your attention this week, April? I planted some redbud trees in my backyard recently, and I check on them every day. Of course. <laughs> and it's really exciting. They're starting to leaf out more. and. I'm excited to see what they look like next year when they bloom in early spring. They have these beautiful pink flowers. And so, the, you know, incorporating the native vegetation and trees in my backyard. It's very exciting for me. That's great. No, that's, that's perfect. What about you, Mary? Yeah, it's such a good time of year right now. I love this time in New England. I was in California early okay. this week and over last weekend. So... Yeah, I was a little bit sleep deprived Coming back yeah. from that. A, right. a nice overnight flight from the West Coast to the East Coast. But <laughs> yeah, um, <laughs> um, yeah, I, I just love getting out West when I can. I do absolutely love New England and I love the seasons, but it's always nice to visit California. A totally different environment in California. Like, you know, rainfall is different. The plants are different. Everything is different there. So it's, it is cool. I, I can totally appreciate that that perspective so <laughs> always good to get out yeah change of scenery mm -hmm. goes a long way well great thank you both for joining today i really appreciate your time um great conversation and um we'll keep in touch thanks so much for also coming out to yukon in february and talking a little bit about your career paths with some students i think 
one of the things the ABC would love to do is more opportunities for students to hear from practitioners in all of the different areas of the environmental um, industry. And it's great that you both were able to volunteer your time for that. So thank you for doing that as well. Yeah, thank you for having us. I hope you enjoyed today's episode with April and Mary. Their respective experiences in the wetland sciences provide great insights into the how the field is addressing climate change. You'll find links from the discussion in the show notes, as well as a link back to our website, ebcne.org. This is a brand new podcast, so please like, rate, and leave a comment. Me and my staff are reading all of the comments and taking them to heart as EBC puts on more episodes. I'll see you in two weeks for a career conversation with Jane Parking Coleman, who talks all about her experiences in risk assessment and learning through doing in Australia and all sorts of other great parts about her career. Energy Environment Economy is a production of the Environmental Business Council of New England. Thank you to EBC Administrative Coordinator Stephanie Sukar for editing the episode and managing the branding and marketing, to Events Assistant Ashley Gray for her research and notes, and to EBC intern Anna Wilcox for her wordsmithing. Music is only forward by Roman Senec Music 2023.